A long, long time ago, only two people walked this earth. They lived in a perfect environment. There was no pollution. There was no erosion. There were no weeds. And therefore, as some of you know at this time of year, there were no Kleenexes. I suppose they might have taken a leaf from time to time, I don't know, but there were none of those pollutants in the air. There were no winters. Amen, Minnesotans? It was warm. It was perfect. In fact, there was no sickness. There was no disease. There was no death. There was not a solitary danger. Never did Adam and Eve pillow their heads at night with a fear or a worry or a pain. Their relationship was unmarred by so much as a single sin against one another. They communed as husband and wife in a flawless environment with flawless harmony. And together they walked in sinless fellowship with the creator of the universe, with God himself who came in the cool of the evening to walk with them and talk with them. To teach them his heart. What a world. But while Adam and Eve drank deeply of the pleasures of God and the perfections of, Eve, of Eden, it was a cataclysmic battle that shook the spirit world. We don't know exactly when this took place, but we know that when Adam and Eve were created and all was done, that everything was very good that God had made, and God had made Satan. And so somewhere in this time after their creation, there was this great battle. Unbeknownst to Adam and Eve, one of God's most glorious angelic creatures, filled with pride, led a rebellion against God. God stood, Lucifer fell. Satan and the angels who followed his rebellion were expelled from the presence of God and consigned to a permanent state of spiritual dereliction. But enraged by his failure to unseat God and rule the universe, Satan turned with bitter resolve to wreak havoc in the moral order that reigned on earth. He targeted Adam and Eve. He crafted a plan by which to seduce mankind, to join his rebellion against the Creator. There was no need to fear for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had the impenetrable armor of God's Word. And they had the unconquerable wall of God's fellowship. They needed only to trust and to obey God, and they had all the power to do so. If they honored God's Word... They would continue to walk in the joy and the wonder of his good gifts throughout eternity. Satan possesses the serpent. For disguise, he approaches the joyful couple, and the test begins. With deceptive speech, he plants doubt. He distorts the truth. He denies God's word, and he lays a tempting trap for the unsuspecting Eve. And in a moment of passion, both Adam and Eve dropped the sword of God's protective truth, and they violated their Creator's law. In a moment of time, they fell into sin, and each of us fell with them. We no longer live in Eden. We're all aware of that. We, we inhabit a world that's ravaged by sin and destruction, 
all of the consequences of evil. We live in a world overwhelmed. Look at your newspaper. Overwhelmed by suffering and war, by sickness and disease, by poverty and anxiety, by corruption and pollution. We inhabit a world ravaged by danger and by death. And Satan and his minions continue to stalk this earth, enticing people to join his self-destructive rebellion, and they want you. Our struggle, warned the Apostle Paul, is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Christian, we are in a spiritual war. You are in a spiritual war as you sit here right now. Though I cannot read your heart, some of you are losing that war. Some of you may perhaps not have gotten out of that war in the sense of joining the victorious side. All of us are under the ravages of sin every day. We are routinely attacked by a spiritual army whose assaults come in the form of seductive appeals and our deepest longings and feelings. This army lures, it persuades, it entices with brilliant strategy and stunning efficiency. As inhabitants of a fallen world, we are enticed every day of our lives to disobey our Creator's will, to pursue our own path to joy and satisfaction rather than His path. Sin undermines our lives and our joy. It bears the fruit of bitter consequences. It separates us from God and from one another. Yet, as maddening as it is, we find it ever so tempting. How alluring and how easy we find it to slip into bitterness and gossip, into lust and greed, into anger and fear, into sensuality and laziness, idolatry and pride, lying and hatred, and the list goes on and on. Simply put, we need help. And for this, we must turn to our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, we read this as we think in all of these, in the context of these ideas, as we think of our Savior. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Or to paraphrase, Jesus was made fully human. Why? In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you hear that? If you're with me, you know that we're in this sinful battle. You know that we're in this struggle, and you sense that in your own experience. We are in the struggle against sin. Did you hear that last phrase? He is able to help those who are being tempted. Throughout his entire life, Jesus was tempted by Satan, but among those many battles, no two stand out any more prominently in the Scriptures, any higher in intensity and significance than those that are recorded at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and at the end of Jesus' ministry. 
We are at the start of that ministry as we come back to Luke chapter 3 this morning. We'll enter into Luke 4, but let me just review from Luke 3 just very briefly. Remembering the context from Luke chapter 3, we have considered, first of all, verse 21 of chapter 3, Jesus' baptism. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, and he was praying. As he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. I'd like you to focus on that phrase again and remember this statement. God the Father splits open heaven and speaks and says, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Then comes the genealogy of Christ, starting at verse 23 and ending with whom? It ends with Adam, the son of God. Now this is a rather strange place for a genealogy to be placed in the book. By this point in the book, Jesus is over 30 years of age. Why place his genealogy here? Why not connect it somewhere with his birth or some other place? Why take the genealogy all the way back to Adam? Let me ask you a question. Is there anybody here that's not a child of Adam? What's the point, Luke? I mean, we kind of all know that. Where does the genealogy need to end? It has to end at Abraham to show that Jesus is the son of promise who has been prophesied through the centuries to be the one to crush Satan's head. That's all further that we need to go. And what evidence do we have for that? That's where Matthew ends. Matt ends with Abraham. There's really no need to go any further than Abraham. No essential need. Why does he end with Adam. In part, it seems that Luke wants us to tie the reference to Adam here in chapter 3 to the narrative which follows in chapter 4. In Adam, we all fell in sin. Jesus is a child of Adam. But in Luke 4, we encounter a second Adam, one who is not connected to Adam in particularly the same way as we are, that is, of course, without human father. But Jesus Christ faces a temptation here in chapter 4 that is very parallel to the temptation that Adam and Eve faced. With obviously very different results. But we look then to our Savior and our Lord as He takes on this challenge. Now the setting of all of this and its location we find in the first two verses. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. I'm in chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. If you can picture in your mind that Jordan Valley, and we find here the reference to the deserts, a a vaguely defined tract of land about 35 by 15 miles Uh, In circumference, it starts at the lower end of the Jordan River, so right as it enters the Dead Sea, and then it runs along the western ridge as, as it falls down from, let's say, Jerusalem down to the Dead Sea. Now, if I can, i got to go backwards here for my map. I'll try to do that, but if you can picture, uh, you can picture the desert over here and Jerusalem over here, you have this, this massive hillside that falls down to the Dead Sea that's right here, and on this side is the desert. And so this area just gets sandblasted by the hot winds of the desert coming right over the Dead Sea and blasting this whole area, creating it into something of a moon-like wilderness, blasted dry by these hot winds. 
There's really little out here but sand and rock. Don't think desert in the sense of flat sand for miles with dunes, but there's not a whole lot of difference. A little bit, there's some vegetation at places at times of the year as there, are, uh, limit, there is limited rain, but it's, it's really a nasty place to be. You've probably seen pictures of the Qumran community and places like that, something similar to that. Lots of rock, not much vegetation, very desolate. Now why is Jesus here? What did the text say? Jesus is here, as we know, not because he stumbled upon Satan by accident, nor did Satan instigate the meeting to trap Jesus. I don't know that he can prove this, but G. Campbell Morgan said, and I think it's worthy of thought, my own conviction is that if the devil could have escaped that day, he would have done so. We cannot prove that, but it is clear that Jesus was full of the Spirit and led by the Spirit, verse 1 full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit into the desert. How many times and in how many ways have we said that over the years in our church? God leads His people into trial. That's who God is. He does that. And it is not because He does not love us. God leads us into trial for His own wise purposes. And some of you, and in fact in, to varying degrees and maybe lesser degrees, we have all been led at times into the desert. Maybe you've been there for a long time, and as far as you can see, you're going to remain there the rest of your life. If you walk in the Spirit and you walk with God, you may be led into the desert. That is where Jesus, as Mark puts it, is driven. He's compelled to go here. Now God tempts no one. God is not ignorant. So he's not ignorant of this showdown that's coming with Satan, but he also tempts no one. The Spirit did not lead Jesus to this desolate place in order to tempt him with sin, but in order to put him in a place where Satan will tempt him. So the newly inaugurated Messiah is ushered into the living room of Satan, and all that takes place in the temptation is Satan's responsibility. But God does not protect his son from this temptation at this place. He goes into the desert where God tries the Israelites of old. Into the desert where the tempter, where the temptation is to turn one's dependence from God. And here Jesus is tested. Why? He's God. But we have to be very cautious here because our understanding of ourselves is straightforward. You're either God or you're not, right? And there's some people that come along our lives from time to time that kind of think they are God, and it's just a matter of trying to get them to figure out that they're not. You're either God or you're not, and we all know that none of us are God. Now for Jesus, it's somewhat different. But I'd like to emphasize here that he is fully human. This is a real temptation. The season of fasting and temptation is like the baptism preparatory for Jesus' messianic ministry. As his baptism confirmed that he was the Son of God, so now the temptation will do the same. Hughes writes very well here, Heaven opened at one, that is at the baptism, heaven opened at one, and hell yawned at the other, and both prepared Jesus to live as the victorious Son. 
So the baptism has taken place. God has spoken. It is a high moment for Jesus. Now he comes to the lowest of moments, to be tempted here in the desert. And you notice in verses, uh, verse 2 that he's fasting. He's had nothing to eat for 40 days. It says, notice, that he's fasting, not starving. Now, if someone got lost out there in the desert, they'd be starving probably fairly soon. But Jesus has done this purposefully. He's not starving, he's fasting. This is an act of consecration. It's a purposeful means of seeking God and feeding on his word at the entrance to ministry. Now, 40 days, this is the absolute limits of the body. Some people's bodies would have died by this place. Jesus is young, he's probably fit. Uh, we would assume uh, most people were in that day as they walked everywhere. But he is at the very limits of his vitality. After several days of fasting, differing for various bodies, but after several days of fasting, that insatiable hunger sort of goes underground. It's not so intense for many days. But then there is a place that comes where the hunger hits with a vengeance. It's like it just waits all of those days where it was underground and it comes up screaming and 40 days is about the limit of the body. So Jesus' body is begging him, overwhelming him with hunger. Now get this picture. How do you think Jesus looks? There's sores all over his body. He's emaciated. He looks like death is whispering in his ear. And I picture there coming up to him in this desert an angel of light. In all the resplendent glory created to stand and hover over the presence of God himself. Here comes this angel. What a picture it is. This human in absolute exhaustion and weakness, confronted by this angel. As we say, Jesus has all the fight knocked out of him at this point. His vital powers are sapped away. His body emaciated and covered with sores. He can hear the haunting whisper of death growing louder and louder. His head is pounding. His mind is reeling as his stomach cries out for food. It would appear to be an utter mismatch. But let's remember, Jesus is fully human. The temptations Satan crafts for him in this passage are real. They're just as felt, just as powerfully felt as if you were there. There's a real danger for us to put Jesus in a certain spot in this situation and to say, well, he had it made. He was divine after all. You just kind of go into your little divine bubble and you hang in there. He feels every pain you would feel. He feels every weakness that you would feel. It's a genuine temptation. Now, obviously, Jesus does not have the many advantages that Adam had in the garden. Jesus is as susceptible, however, to these temptations in his flesh, in his human nature. Think of where Adam was, as we looked at it earlier this morning. Adam inhabited a perfect environment. He was surrounded by food that we could never even imagine. Jesus is in the desert without food for 40 days. Adam and Eve enjoyed ideal companionship. Jesus is alone. He is as vulnerable as a human being can get. 
You put every disadvantage that you have ever faced on the plate, and Jesus' disadvantage is multiplied over and over again in this situation. He is facing temptation like you will never face. And it breaks down into three parts. And I'd like us to concentrate these, on these almost like three sections today. We're going to stop at each one by God's grace and reflect and to think. So let's take temptation one. Stones to bread. Verse three, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. I think that goes back to chapter 3 and verse 22. What did God say there? You are my son. Okay, says Satan. You're his son. You're the son of God, and I believe that's what he means, the son of God. Well, if that's true, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Then turn this stone into bread. Now think of where Jesus is. He's tortured by hunger. He must have salivated immediately just again at the thought Strewn all over the desert floor in this region are these small limestone rocks which would have approximated the size and the shape of the loaves that they baked in the Israeli ovens at that time. And I imagine here, the other gospel says that he says, make these stones, plural, into loaves. Here it's in the singular. So perhaps in some of the discussion, and obviously much of it is cut out, but I picture here Satan picking up a rock and putting it essentially in Jesus' starving face. And he says, make this bread. Why torture yourself with hunger? You're God after all. Turn it into bread and eat. Surely God does not want you to starve. And you know what? In that very moment, Jesus could have done it. This is a real temptation. Now, you might get mad at somebody who tempted you in the same situation, but it wouldn't be much of a temptation. Your temptation would be hatred toward that person because you can't turn a stone into, rock, or a stone into bread. This is a real temptation. Jesus can do it. He has the capacity. He has the miraculous power, and he's being goaded to use it. And what would really be wrong with that? Have you ever thought of that? What would really... What, so what if he did made it into bread? It's no sin to eat food. I think everyone would say, in fact, it would at this point be sin not to. He's going to commit suicide if he doesn't. So what's the big deal of turning it into bread? Why is this temptation? Maybe Jesus is just being helped out here by Satan after all. We can't think that way because that's not how Jesus thought. There's something diabolical in this suggestion, and Jesus sees it, verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. And in the context of Deuteronomy 8, which he quotes, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, which some texts include here. But at any rate, that is what he said, for it's quoted in another passage. Very logical answer. Does it strike us that way? I don't know, but I, I've always read this. I, not always, I, I guess I've studied it now for some years, but you read this and you say it first. Now, wait a minute, what did I miss here? Man doesn't live by bread alone. What's the point? 
what helps us out here is to know what Jesus is quoting, and that's Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let me just recount it for you quickly. Moses there is recounting Israel's relationship to God as a nation. The exodus from Egypt, the giving of the law, the wilderness wanderings, God's love for his people and their responsibility to love and to honor him. In Deuteronomy 6-8, through Moses recounts these wilderness wanderings of the Israelites when they followed what? They followed the glory cloud through that great trial in the wilderness, suffering hunger and thirst, and often failed to trust God in it. And Moses is saying to the new nation, as they're ready to enter into Israel, don't be like that generation that distrusted God in the desert when they were hungry and thirsty. You see the parallel. Jesus draws right out of that context and says, we are not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As the Israelites followed the glory cloud, what does Jesus follow? He follows the Spirit into the same type of region. Now why did God lead Israel into the desert? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3 say this, to prove your faith, to test you and to see if you would trust me. You see where Jesus is? He's right where Israel was, exactly, and he knows it. And so he says to Satan, I don't live on bread alone. I live on the word of God. And God has not told me to eat yet. Therefore, I don't eat. You will never be in a place of, quote, need like that in your life. The discussion of need enters in at so many places into the discussion of sin these days. I had this need. It was unfulfilled. I had to fulfill it. And so I did. I'm just human. No one would ever suffer need like this. Anything further. He has the power, he has the capacity, but he says, I won't do it because I wait on the word of God. I feed on that. If God wanted to teach him dependence by starving him to death, he would not bypass the will of God in order to meet his own natural, otherwise legitimate needs. And there are people today who in this same spirit say, if I must die to do what is right, I will die. People in Pakistan, for instance, today are going to church knowing there could be a bullet coursing through their brain in an instant of time while they sit there and listen to the word of God preached. But they go. They don't go out of our sense of need. They go in obedience to God, and they trust him. So Satan was tempting Jesus to take matters in his own hands and to please his flesh on his own terms, but even if it killed him, Jesus would do it. I will live on God's word. When he says to eat, I will eat. Until then, I will not submit to my hunger. Satanic temptation appeals to our passions. We learn that here. We know it in our own experience. It appeals to our passions. Where does Satan grab you? Where does he tempt you? 
It is in your passions, your cravings, your natural thirsts, and your hungers. In a word, it is at your desires. There is nothing evil about desire itself. We have natural desires for food and friendship and sex and recognition and love and money, comfort and security and safety and peaceful relationships. Those are natural desires. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of these desires, but Satan loves to tempt us to fulfill these desires on our own terms, in our own strength, according to our own wisdom and timing, and above all else, apart from God's Word and will. That's where it's at. That's the battle. We live in a society, of course, that preaches that we must do what feels good. We must never deny our passions. And the whole needs discussion has been real, is really generally nothing more than a discussion of what I want. But that means we're going to have to walk against the grain. It means that we will have to learn the discipline of submitting natural desires to the will of God. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, think about Adam and think about Jesus. Putting it together, we listen to what God says and we obey it. Trusting that His wisdom will steer us to the greater fulfillment of our desires and keep us from the destruction that comes when we heed our own desires against His will. Just like Adam you have to listen to what God says and to believe that it is best for you. There's no other answer. We do not live by bread alone, but by what comes from the mouth of God. Just like Adam, we must listen to what God says. We must wield that as our sword. Are you there? Are there ways in which you are satiating or fulfilling desires in violation of God's word? That's the question. The answer is to live by what God says, not by how I feel. To do what God commands, not what I want. And to trust Him in it. Now, hang in there. And for those who visit, this gets kind of long sometimes, but stick with us and leave if you need to without apology. I'd like us to stop here at this first temptation for a few moments and to think. Are there ways in which you are satiating or fulfilling desires in violation of God's word? Let's stop for a few moments with our heads bowed, and to think and to do business with God as we meditate. And then as we do, we'll sing together. Let's stand just for a moment.
and respond to the Lord in song. Man shall not live by bread alone. Sing it with all of your heart, with meaning, for it is the truth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We look at the second temptation, verse 5. We'll go through these a little bit quicker, but let's consider them carefully. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be yours. There's probably some type of vision taking place here. Jesus is not dreaming. He really faces the temptation. But there's obviously something unique or even miraculous taking place here. Perhaps he enters into Satan's own dimension. A dimension referred to as the heavenly realms by the Apostle Paul. In verses 6 and 7... We consider the temptation here. There's a sense in which Satan could never take such a, make such a promise. God reigns supreme over this world, and Satan knows it. But there's another sense in which Satan is the God of this world, and this world has been put into his lap. 1 John 5, 19, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Satan says he will step down and abdicate his power if Jesus will only bow down before him. This offer indicates, doesn't it, that Satan understands who Jesus is. Satan is willing to give up his authority over the world for one moment of worship from Jesus. You know what's in the human heart. The ambition that we've seen through world wars and on into ancient histories of individuals who rise up and speak for what's in the heart of all of us when they say, I want to rule the world. Satan was willing to give up that, not ambition, in a sense that reality, for one moment of worship from Jesus. Bow down to me, and I'll give you rule over the world. For Jesus, this is nothing less than an offer to avoid pain, among other things, his and the world's. Think of what is before him. For one moment of idolatry, Jesus could have spared you and me all of the ravages of sin that we've experienced. Hypothetical, I suppose we could argue that point, that it's all. But he could have ruled the world at that point and spared all of the misery that comes when sinners try to rule sinners. That's quite tempting to the heart of someone who loves with all of his heart. 
And with that same moment of idolatry, Jesus could purchase an exemption from the cross, it would appear. He knows the implications of Isaiah 52 and 53. He knows the ominous prophecy of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows all of this as he comes to this time. Worldwide ruler. Power. Prestige. Ruling in love and righteousness and justice. That is what stands before Jesus as a possibility. He could silence all those critics back in Nazareth. He could show the world who he really was. He could liberate his family and nation from Rome and rule with unprecedented power and, as I've said, above all, spare this world from the ravages of sin. It appears to be a pretty good offer. Maybe too good to refuse. But that, of course, is exactly what Jesus does. Verse 8. It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Quoting from where? Deuteronomy 6. That same section as Israel is coming into the promised land, God says, No other gods. Worship Him alone. No matter what end may be gained, Jesus will not succumb to unrighteous means. Did you hear that? We've got to think about that. No matter what end is gained, he will not succumb to unrighteous means. He will not take the idolatrous bypass around the cross. Satan often tempts us to choose something good in exchange for God's best. Something now in exchange for the fuller reward that comes at the end of faithfulness. How deceptively he entices us to rush into ill-advised plans, to seize upon premature means, and to grasp at possessions and solutions before their time. And the grease on this slide into the pit of disaster is wandering affections. We listen to gods, including our own self, who will give us the goods before it's time. When our love for God wavers, we are severely tempted to turn our affections over to other gods, be they children or mates, money or possessions and activity, the opinions of our peers or whatever it is. Other people, other voices, other things begin to rise in the importance, in importance in our mind. And we bow down just for a moment. So the question comes before us in this second temptation. Do you worship God alone? Well, of course I do. I don't have any <laughs> idols on my shelf at home. Don't bow down to any idols. But think of it in the context here. Think of it how Jesus uses that passage to address what Satan has said to him. And I think it says this, Worshiping God means you want for yourself what God wants for you when he wants it for you. You want for yourself what God wants for you and when he wants it for you. And you will allow no one to convince you to act otherwise. That's worshiping God alone. 
Let's stand again and meditate. Do you truly worship God alone? Do you want for yourself what he wants for you when he wants it for you? sing in response, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you Hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's go on that next verse. Also reflects these truths. Worship the Lord your God alone. Serve Him forever. He Lord your God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you. Please be seated. Temptation 3. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Much discussion goes into what that means. The NIV uses an interpretive translation here. which tells us nothing more than any other translation. It's hard, it's hard to know. It's the height of the temple. We don't really know where that is. It speaks of it here as the wing of the temple, or the highest point of the temple, rather. I'm, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. The Greek text says the wing of the temple. We have the NIV interpretation here as the highest point of the temple, but we really don't know where that is. Many have sided with the view that it is the royal portico, and that's very tempting to do, and perhaps is the, the case. If you can picture the large temple complex, there was that long uh, Herod's palace, beautiful palace, had porticos, and there was what was called the royal portico, this sort of porch out there with the colonnades. And if you get up on the roof of that, and you turn in the right direction, and you look out to the east over the Cadrone Valley, back then when there wasn't so much rubble and erosion and all of that, you look down, and as Josephus tells us, you got dizzy. The reason being that you had the valley below with the wall of the valley. On top of the wall of the valley is the wall of the city, and on top of the wall of the city is Herod's palace, and on top of Herod's palace is the roof, and you're on top of the roof. Forty-five stories to the bottom. Well, we don't know if that's where they were, but it certainly would have made for a dramatic setting. As Jesus looks over this valley, forty 
400, I'm sorry, 450 feet above the floor of the Cadron Valley. You'll notice here Satan doesn't push him off. That would not be a temptation, that would be murder. Right? He says, you jump. I don't want to commit murder here, I want you to commit suicide. No, in fact, he has a different idea, doesn't he? In fact, middle of verse 9, if you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. All right, Jesus, you believe in the Bible. You keep quoting this. Every time I tempt you, you come to the Scriptures. You keep holding to the truth of the Word of God, so show me that you really believe it. Here it is, Psalm 91. He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's in the Word of God, Jesus. So do it. You trust God's Word, do it. You believe you must entrust yourself entirely to His care, good enough. This is what His Word says, jump. Jesus tempts, is tempted by Satan to prove Himself in a sensational manner. And you know what? Again, He can do it. As the Creator of the universe he has charge of the angels. He can command them to wing their way to protect him and to carry him down to the bottom floor of that Cadrone Valley softly as a feather. He can do it. What does Jesus do? He comes back to his sword and says, verse 12, it says, the word of God says, as another gospel writer puts it, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Right out of Deuteronomy 6, once again. This is what Israel did to God when they wandered in the desert. They would not trust his word, and so they tested him when Moses struck the rock and they complained bitterly about what God was doing to them. They put him to the test. What we learn here, of course, or are reminded of, is that the Bible never contradicts itself. Jesus is not saying, you're right, Satan. Psalm 91 says that, but I've got this other verse over there in Deuteronomy, and you know they're both equally valid, though they contradict one another. That is not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is, Satan, your interpretation of Psalm 91 is wrong because it conflicts with Deuteronomy 6. Something we should all take with us. The Bible hangs together as a perfectly crafted novel, or to change the analogy, as a perfect puzzle. Each piece locks into the other, and there's no missing pieces. So if there is contradiction in Scripture, the problem lies with us, not with Scripture. That's what Jesus says. To leap off this precipice would be to force God to act or to simply commit suicide. Will God bear up His people on angels' wings and preserve them? Any time that is necessary and part of God's plan, He will do it. Psalm 91 makes that crystal clear. You can trust God in anything at any time. But if God has not told you to jump out of an airplane without a parachute... Don't count on Psalm 91 to save you. God is not against taking calculated risks. That's not the point. 
but it is evil to demand that he intervene when we take foolish risks. This is really a way of trying to control God. I press the envelope. I press the agenda. We are not to challenge God's ability to deliver us, but to wait upon that deliverance. The temptation is once again for Jesus to take matters into his own hands rather than to wait on the Lord. How tempting it must have been for Jesus to prove his trust in God. But again, he would not yield to Satan's initiative. Once again, he appeals to Scripture. And so when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Further temptations would come, but Jesus had passed the test. Matthew tells us that angels came at this point to minister to Jesus, language which is often found in the context of caring for someone with food. And so the picture that we gain is angels came along and fed Jesus, who was at the very verge of death by this point. Exhausted by the moral temptations, Exhausted by the lack of sustenance. They water and they feed him back to health. Now, we have thought and we have applied, but give me a few more minutes. Jesus proves, this is the point, in the context of Luke, he proves that he is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. This Messiah can get us out of the muck. He can rescue us from sin. He took Satan on. God gave Satan three swings, three shots at Jesus to give him his very best. He put Jesus in the ultimate vulnerable position and gave Satan three shots. And Jesus won. We think of probably the most commendable person that comes to mind in a similar situation as Job. And he almost won. Right? Those waves of destruction that overcame him. He was placed in a very vulnerable spot. But in the midst of all that, he had the counsel of friends as bad as it was. He had companionship as bad as it was. But we see as he stands up at the end of the book that he must admit he has questioned God. He's questioned the authority and the wisdom of God and his trust proved incomplete though we would all stand on the sidelines and cheer Job for all that he accomplished in his righteousness. But we're not dealing here with the second Job, are we? We're dealing with the second Adam. We are dealing with one who takes on all of the rage of Satan and stands without sin, Hebrews 4. And therefore he knows how to pull us out, how to keep us from it, how to rescue us from the clutches of sin. The Word of God was His only sword, and it was sufficient. Jesus, notice what He does not do. There's no incantations here. He does not begin to burn incense and sit on His legs crosswide or on His head. He does not employ some sensational gimmick of some sort. He issues no word of command to Satan. Think about that in today's context. No word of command. What does he do? He faces Satan and he wields the sword of the Word of God. Satan tempts 
and Jesus holds up the truth and says, I stand here. Sensuality aside, pride and prestige aside, all of the possibilities of what could be done that's good aside, all of that set aside, I will worship God alone. I will heed his word alone. I will trust him alone. He holds to the word. This is gold. It's not Jesus knocking Satan over the head with some spiritual baseball bat that you and I can't hold. What does the New Testament tell us to do when we face Satan? It tells us to do exactly what Jesus did here. Right? James chapter 4 and verse 7, here's the command. Resist the devil. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, what is the command? Resist him. And what is the means? You hold to the truth of God's word. Now in these meditations that I've pressed on you this morning, as we've stopped at these various places to consider, as I have run through the sins with which I struggle as a man, each of those sins has specific passages of Scripture that address them and help me to defeat them by God's grace. And each of those sins, when I fail, are sins where I set aside God's truth and I listen to the lie. That's the battle. And Jesus is our model, Hebrews 2.18, and our ally, Hebrews 4.15 and 16. Adam and Eve fell by relying on human rationalization. Jesus refused to yield clinging to the solid anchor point of God's word. Who are we to think that we are going to operate in a better way using different means? If that's what it took for Jesus to defeat sin, that's what it took for him to resist the devil, that's what it will take for us. One more thought as we close. Do you see how much Jesus hated sin? He was willing to die of starvation rather than sin. He was willing to pass up the opportunity of world history to run this entire world in righteousness. He was willing to set that aside to be the king of the earth because it meant in one moment to sin. If he, with absolute perfection and wisdom, looks at sin and says, it's not worth the simplest sin to have the whole world in your lap or to survive starvation or to prove to this nation who you are, then there is not one little sin that we commit that is worth it. We must learn to hate sin as Jesus did and to remember that God's word is our life. How did he do it? The word of God under the guidance of the spirit of God. And we have that same opportunity and privilege if we walk in the spirit 
we will avoid the lusts of the flesh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. We'll respond again in song in just a moment, but let's pray together here. Father, we realize that we have been in the presence of wisdom that is beyond this world's comprehension. Of a cataclysmic battle whose implications follow through to our very day, 2,000 years removed. We thank you that Jesus stood this test. I pray that you would help us in our battle with sin. We are so easily lured away from your word and your will, but I pray that we, walking in the Spirit and heeding your word, would not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, but would obey you in love. And God, I pray upon this assembly, we've invested a long time here. This is a lengthy sermon for our culture. But I pray, Lord, that in these 50 or 55 minutes that we've spent in your word, that it would have an effect in the way that we live. What a waste of time to come here and to walk out unchanged. God, please don't let that happen. I pray for those now that are dealing with sin and struggling with, its, with the effort to walk away from it, to rid themselves of it, to stop doing it, to repent out of the midst of it, whatever the case. I pray that they'd not walk out of here exactly the same as they came in. If nothing else, rebuke them for the sin of thinking, I know all those things. God, remind all of us, we know, we've heard, but remind us, Lord, the battle that we face, and may we be changed. For any that know you not as Savior, I plead, dear Father, that you would show them the glory of of Christ's victory over sin, not just this one, but the final one at the cross, where again he defeated Satan and Satan's temptation to jump not off of the pinnacle of the temple, but to jump off the cross. He stayed. God, I pray for anyone that knows you not, that they would come to understand what Jesus did there to rid them of sin. Help us now as we respond, not only in this moment, but in this week to come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.